things. There we go. Perfect. All right. In three, two, one. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Pre-PT Grind podcast. We help you decide, prepare, and transform into becoming the best physical therapist because it's not about getting into PT school or PTA school. It's about becoming the best physical therapist or PTA you can be. And on this episode, we have a very special guest. Uh, I guess I can say, I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself more, but maybe Dr. Uh, F. Scott Field, he'll, he'll introduce himself more in a second, but we have a very, very special, and I can say important episode that you guys need and want to listen to as well. We're going to be diving deep into um, how you are seen from the other side of the computer screen, of the phone, of PTCast, of your application, uh, from their perspective. I try and talk about it sometimes, but you know, sometimes you guys hear me over and over again. I start to sound like a broken record. So it might be a little different coming from someone else who was actually on that other side of academia. Then we'll be going into uh, our one of our favorite topics, is PT even worth, uh, worth it, the return on investment, and so much more. So welcome to the show, Dr. F. Scott. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's great to see you as always, Casey. I, you know, been following you guys obviously for a long time. Love what you're doing. Uh, love how you're pushing the profession forward. So uh, keep keep up the great work, man. I, I love what you guys are, are doing these days. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's get started. Let's get started. Take us in uh, and, and let us know kind of where you came from, what's your background and, and a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in theory, it's Dr. Dr. F. Scott Field, right? Because I got my doctorate in physical therapy, but also my doctorate in education, right? I got my EDD. Uh, was a non-traditional route. Uh, I was an English major first at Wake Forest University. Uh, then I got into a master's program uh, for physical therapy at East Carolina University, and then eventually uh, got my transitional doctorate through the University of St. Augustine. And while I was there, the head of the EDD program said, hey, are you interested in teaching ever? And I said, no, not really. Uh, my dad was an English teacher for many, many years. Uh, I didn't enjoy those kids. I, I'm out. I don't want any part of it. Uh, and he said, no, no, no. It, you know, professional programs and graduate programs are a little different, right? People are adult learners. They're paying to be there. They want to be there. They want to learn the content. So it's a little bit different audience. So I said, all right, well, if my back gives out or my hands give out or whatever, and I can't do manual therapy anymore, I can't do my job, then maybe falling back on education could be a good thing, right? So I went through the EDD program and got my educational doctorate. Uh, and, and I was pretty burnt out after the dissertation. I needed a break from academia. So I went back into clinical world and just assumed I was going to use my doctorate in education when I retired, you know, when it was closer to retirement time, uh, then I would re review, you know, my options and see if teaching was one of them, right? Well, then COVID hit uh, in 2020. And you know, truth be told, my wife's a type one diabetic. And so I didn't want to risk bringing that home to her from the, the clinic. So I kind of stepped out of my clinical world. And that same week, the head of the program at St. Augustine asked, hey, are you still interested in teaching? And I said, well, you know, I wasn't, but now I might be, you know. And so it was a perfect uh, timing thing. And it just lined up right. And so I, I jumped into academia full time uh, right around when COVID hit, uh, which was interesting, right? Because we went through a lot of online teaching. Um, you know, the program I teach at is a flex program. So most of it's online, but I go up to, to campus for labs. Uh, about every other weekend approximately. So, um, you know, like I said, non-traditional path to get to physical therapist. I did that for about 15 years. And then uh, last two or three years have been spent uh, in academia um, at the University of St. Augustine's Austin Flex program. So that pretty much catches us up to where we're at now. Uh, got a lot more to cover today. 
Absolutely. I got to ask this question first because I'm a big Tesla fan. Have you seen the Austin Gigafactory? I have, uh, and not only have I, I live out in Wimberley, which is kind of out in the hill country, right? It's, uh, you know, about 30, 45 minutes uh, south and west of, of Austin. And yet everybody here has a Tesla, apparently. Like, I missed that memo. I didn't get that, that you must have a Tesla memo. So I'm working toward it now. That That's a new goal of mine, I guess. But yeah, Tesla's doing some big things here. Uh, even when I was up in Waco, right, they had a, uh, a launch um, testing site up there. Um, where they did a lot of the rocket testing. So uh, Tesla's been been in my backyard for quite some time now. That's what I like to hear. Good news from word on the street. I love it. I love it. So for the students who don't know, what's the difference between uh, DPT, a PhD, and, and an EDD as well? Yeah, I mean, the DPT is a clinical degree, right? And so it, it it's a doctorate level degree, but it means that you got more training in clinical work, right? Usually there's an extra, there's a couple extra courses and then there's an extra um, clinical rotation or two, right? Uh, from my master's for sure, uh, there was an additional clinical rotation that we had to do for the transitional doctorate, right? Now, PhD, DSC, EDD, those are all terminal degrees, right? Those usually culminate in some form of dissertation. Right. So the, the big thing here to recognize is that the clinical doctorate, right, allows you to teach, especially at a DPT program. You have to have at least the degree of the students that you're teaching. The terminal degree is one that CAPTI looks at, right? CAPTI is our governing body that kind of looks over all of these physical therapy programs and make sure that they're accredited, right? Make sure they meet the minimum standards to be considered an accredited university. For, for physical therapy purposes. CAPTI prefers that 50% or more of the faculty have a terminal degree. So that's where it gets a little dicey. And that's why if you do want to go into academia and teach full-time, you really need to consider having a terminal degree because as people come and go, the numbers switch and flip-flop a little. And if you're right at the 50-50 mark and somebody with a terminal degree leaves, now that leaves you in the, you know, too many DPTs and, and not enough terminal degrees. So universities generally like to lean a little he more heavy on the terminal degrees so that if somebody comes or goes, they're still way above the threshold. Uh, and that's why it's kind of tough to get a full-time, you know, core faculty position if you only have a DPT, a clinical doctorate, which again, makes no sense to me because, you know, why is that doctorate not good enough to then teach the same level we're at? Why, why is a terminal degree necessary? Um, especially because, you know, not every PhD learns how to teach. They know research, you know, and they're good at that. But the EDD taught me literally how to learn and how to teach, right? And that was huge for me because I went through two graduate programs, right? My master's and then my TDPT, not knowing how to fully learn. I was just a rote memorization guy. Like, I'll just memorize this. I'll read it over. I'll highlight it. And, you know, eventually I'll get it. Well, that is not learning. You know, that is the furthest thing from learning. That's like very low on the Bloom's taxonomy level. You know, it's, it's, it's just memorization and that doesn't count. You got to start pulling in concepts and themes and linking them all together and bringing them together. And that's how we really learn. Uh, so it took me a whole EDD program to figure that out. Uh, but I'm getting better little by little. So is it safe to say that uh, DPTs with a terminal degree might be in demand? Big, big time, big time, especially over the next five years or so. Uh, a lot of the big names in physical therapy, especially in academia, are starting to get up in age and they're gonna, there's going to be a big wave of retirements coming up, right? And if those terminal degrees retire 
and they, you know, head off into the sunset to enjoy their retirement, we're not going to have enough terminal degrees to cover all these programs that keep rolling out, right? When I, a couple of years ago, when, when I wrote my book, it was 222 programs. We're up to close to 300 now. Um, it's, it's, you know, growing at an enormous rate, which again has pros and cons, right? It's good because it gives more people opportunity to get in, you know, but it could be bad because it could saturate the market a little bit as well when it comes time for graduation and job times, right? But either way, whatever the, the, the decision is, you have to have people to staff those new programs, right? You have to have professors to, to teach the stuff, right? And, and, and again, if CAPTI requires 50% of the, the people to have terminal degrees, we got to start figuring out a way to get more people on board with, with terminal degrees. So in theory, what would happen then if uh, what you said actually comes to fruition and we don't have enough of that 50% level uh, to meet all the school demands? Do they lose accreditation? Do they shut down? What do you see happening or what could happen if that happens? Yeah, I mean, they could lose accreditation. I think realistically what will happen is they, they would be put on a probationary period. And then uh, from there, they would have two years to kind of figure it out and get back up to speed at the level they needed to be at where 50% of the faculty was, was terminal degrees, right? That two years allows people to graduate and get their terminal degree and or they can seek out other people, sometimes in other professions, right? You may have a, a PhD in anatomy, but not physical therapy. So you could use a PhD person to teach gross anatomy, even though they're not physical therapy, uh, you know, trained. So again, we could, we could supplement some areas, right? Pharmacology, you could have a PhD in pharmacology and teach that course, right? Uh, but you know, again, not necessarily PhD trained. So there are ways to get terminal degrees in there. Um, it's just, you know, it becomes a lot harder, especially when they're not physical therapy trained. So what led you to go down that academia route and, and get these degrees and want to teach? Yeah, I don't, you know, for me, it was somewhat subconscious, right? It, I've always been a lifelong learner. I've always been very curious uh, I wish I could say that I knew what I was doing when I chose an EDD over a PhD, but I didn't. Uh, it just worked out. And, and the big takeaway here is let's say physical therapy as a profession completely crumbles to the ground and, and I, you know, it's useless from here on out and it becomes something else or whatever. I can still teach at a college level in the education realm, right? K through 12 or, or, or college level education, whatever it may be. I can still use the EDD to teach right? Just general education. Whereas the PhD would probably be a little more geared toward biomechanics or physical therapy or something a little more specific on that research topic for the PhD. So again, you know, I, I wish I could say I had the foresight to think about that, but I didn't. I just thought, you know, hey, I like education. I like the theory behind how we learn and, and what, you know, what that looks like and how we teach to then better learn, you know? And so the EDD made a lot of sense to me. Plus, again, my dad was an English teacher, right? So I had a lot of background with, with teaching. I just didn't think I would ever, you know, pursue that route. Uh, I think that the, the reason I kind of went into it was that curiosity and that lifelong learner kind of background of just, I'm, I'm always asking more questions. I'm nerding out on things. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, the how and the why, because I had to work my tail off just to be a straight B student right? And an occasional C here and there. I was not a straight A student, you know, and the only way I got through my EDD program was basically persistency, you know, and grit. So I think, you know, again, 
realizing it was going to be hard, realizing it was going to be tough, and then just working my tail off to, to get through those programs, especially the dissertation, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of made it all worthwhile in the end. You know, it was scary up front. I wasn't sure I was doing the right thing, uh, especially because I didn't even really want to teach at first, but, uh, you know, came full circle. And now here I am, you know, full on academia. I love it. I love it. I, I tell people all the time why I chose physical therapy goes because all of the vast amount of opportunities that I can go into with this one degree. So those preliminary questions were just selfish for me. So um, now going into uh, PT school, like what is it like teaching and being on the academic uh, side? Like what do you do there? How much admissions, how much teaching, all that stuff? Yeah, so our workload is basically 50% teaching, right? So half of the work we do every week has to be considered teaching. And I teach uh, intro to physical therapy, basically, uh, you know, PTP1. I teach patient care management one, which is like bed mobility and transfers. Uh, patient care management two, which is uh, transfers and a little bit higher level acute care and, and uh, ICU type stuff with tubes and lines uh, with the more difficult and complex patients. Uh, geriatrics, um, and then uh, integumentary, uh, which is wound care and lymphatics and stuff like that. So I, I you know, I currently teach five courses, not all at once. Uh, it's two or three every semester. Uh, we do trimesters. So, uh, you know, every third of the year, I'm teaching, you know, three classes. One, one semester, I teach four, but it'll mainly be three classes, and it'll be some sort of mixture of the three or the five. Um, and, and then the other half that we do, the other 50%, comes from service to the university, service and mentoring to students, and research, right? So that's our four pillars that we have to kind of even out. And so for me, one of the service to the university uh, aspects that I took was the admissions committee, right? So there's all sorts of you know, boards you can sit on and committees you can sit on and chair positions you can take, tons of opportunity to, to you know, give back and give service to the, the university. One of the ones that I, I chose and, and was somewhat, you know, elected to was the, uh, the admissions committee. So that's one of the, the many positions that I hold in academia. Um, you know, there's a couple other uh, chair positions that I hold that are a little bit different. I'm the, um, uh, the, co-advisor and, and faculty advisor for the business entrepreneurs and private practice student special interest group that we just started. Um, I also help out with um, a little bit of the curriculum uh, management and development. Um, and, and then on top of that, there's also a appeals committee that I sit on as well. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of like um, somewhat unrelated to academia side jobs, but it all ties into things that we have to do to keep the university and the program moving forward. Uh, you know, so teaching's half my job and then the, the services are all the other parts of my job. And then again, top it off with a little research sprinkled in there as well. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. I'm, I'm learning a lot. I knew some of this stuff, but uh, I'm learning more every day. So this is amazing just for me. So um, I tell um, our audience a lot of times that physical therapy schools have studied us, the pre-PTs, the students, longer than we've ever thought about physical therapy, right? There's a whole journal on us called the Journal of Physical Therapy Education. So when it comes to certain requirements and certain standards that CAPD or you guys look at, because I get this question all the time, why do I have to take this stupid chemistry class? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I try to explain, but I don't know if it gets through on TikTok and Instagram comments. 
So can you kind of break down how that works, why these requirements are there uh, from your side, the admission side? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously like every every school's different they all have different requirements, right? And they all look at different things. But if you take the basics, right, of most PT programs and what their admissions look, look for, obviously GPA is, is an easy one, right? specifically science GPA is, is really more important than, you know, your other courses, because again, we want to see how did you do in those sciences, even down to the molecular and cellular level, bio and chemistry, to then apply it to the next level, which would be, you know, biological, you know, muscles, joints, bones, everything that makes up our body, right? And then from there, up even a higher level to patient care, right? So it's kind of a stepping stone thing, right? But then we also look at things like, you know, community involvement. What else are you doing, right? What are, what are the other things? So like a, a lower GPA isn't a death sentence, right? I, like I said, I was a straight B student, maybe a little bit of a C sprinkled in there. So, you know, GPA wasn't strong for me. The, the biggest factor, I think, was the fact that I was an English major, which is a little bit different. So I could communicate pretty well. I could write fairly well. And then I also volunteered at the hospital in the PT department, which, you know, got me into PT to begin with. Um, I was involved in a lot of community service projects at the church that I went to when I was an undergrad uh, at Wake Forest there. And, you know, I was, I would, I'd had a lot of leadership positions, you know, I was, I, I was, you know, I had a leadership position in my fraternity. I had a leadership position in my PT class. I had, you know, uh, I, I, even going back to high school, I was, you know, in student union president, I was involved in the, the musicals, and I was involved in football and golf and, you know, uh, baseball and just, you know, lacrosse, every everything I could get involved in, I did, uh, not necessarily to get into college, and then eventually grad school, it was just because again, I was curious, I enjoyed it, I liked learning, I liked sports, I liked, uh, you know, plays, I liked acting, I liked, I, I liked a lot of things. And that really helped, because again, I was able to show my versatility and how I was involved in all these different things and how they kind of came together to make me who I was. So every question that the, the interview board had for me, I had a pretty good answer because I could pull from all these life experiences and these groups and these things that I did. So the GPA wasn't great. But again, just being able to have a one-on-one -on -one real conversation as if it was just a couple people sitting at a coffee table like chatting. You know, that that I think went a really long way. And, uh, you know, again, we, we some schools look at things like your, your GREs. Some schools don't even bother with them anymore, you know, and you're going to see, I think, a lot more movement toward using like a grit scale uh, and some non-traditional measurements, you know, of, of like tenacity and and you know stick to itiveness and just like things that demonstrate and show that you kind of got knocked down but were able to get back up and persevere you know um for those who haven't read you know angela duckworth's book on on grit i mean it you know it's it's a great one because it, it kind of shows you that you don't have to be perfect at it you don't have to be the best at it but if you keep trying and keep putting your mind to it and keep pushing you just get a little bit better each day and that little bit better will eventually get you across the finish line i think you know so from an admissions standpoint like i said it's one of those things where gpa doesn't tell the whole story for sure you know we we would like a high gpa especially in the sciences same thing with gre high score there helps, but it's not the end of the world. It's really the whole package. You know, what, what can you show us that demonstrates that you're, 
you know, really pushing and really trying things and really getting out there and, and being involved, right. And getting, getting in your community and, and, and being a, you know, a helpful member to that community, you know, that those kind of things, they, they go a long way. So I'm going to be the devil's advocate on part of the students. Cause I hear the pre-PTs right now. We were, we were one of them. Oh, so GPA is not everything we get that. However, if I have below your minimums, if GPA isn't everything, why don't you look at me? Can you kind of explain why that's the case, how it works, and how these or why these minimums are in place to protect the school and the student as well? Yeah, so there, there, there's a couple reasons to look at this and a couple ways to look at it, right? One, there's a lot of studies that show a GPA of 3.0 or below has a much higher failure rate on the first time at the NPTE, right? 2.8 and, and below is, is pretty rough, but that 3.0 is, is usually a pretty good cutoff to where if you have a GPA of 3.0, especially in the sciences, and you can maintain that 3.0 throughout graduate school, more than likely you're gonna succeed on the first time of the NPTE, okay? So schools want to keep their first-time pass rates up above 80% if possible, right? Uh, as, you know, that's usually kind of a barometer for the for CAPTI. They look at that and say, you know, is your pass rate first time 80% or better? Um, and if it's not, again, you could possibly go into probation and have a two-year period to turn that around and fix it, right? So, you know, it's not, we're not just pulling numbers out of the air. We're just saying, hey, look, you know, if you don't have that 3.0 grade point average, there's a strong chance you're going to struggle to pass the NPTE on your first time. Now, does that really matter in the end? I would argue, no, it took me a handful of times to pass the NPTE, right? Because I did have that below 3.0 GPA. So I fit the mold, you know, but at the same time, I ended up being a pretty good therapist at the end. I had a great career. So is it really that important? No. Did I pass eventually? Yes. And again, that that end pass rate, right? The final pass rate should be in the 95, 97, close to 100 range, right? Do all your students pass eventually? You know, the hope is yes. But, uh, you know, one of the big things Cappy looks at is how many of your students pass on the first time, right? Because it becomes an issue for, for our students, right? A, we're trying to protect ourselves as a university, but B, we're trying to protect the students as well. You just spent $100,000 plus or minus on, a, on an education, and now you've got to pay $1,500 for a, a board exam or a big test. And if that doesn't go well, now you got to pay it again, right? And, and you may have to take some remediation. You may have to take some review courses, which also costs. And if you don't pass it again, then you've got to do it again. And you've got to keep putting this money out there until you eventually pass that exam, right? So we're trying to protect all the parties involved, right? Not just, not just the university. You know, we want to let the students know as well, hey, if you don't have that 3.0, you may have to work a little bit harder just to try to get it up to that point, or at the very least, recognize that the NPTE could be a little bit of a struggle for you. You know, and again, that's just the data suggesting that that's nothing personal. That's not us attacking you. That's literally just saying it, the data shows this is this is, you know, what happens if you have below that 3.0. 100%. So now with this topic, uh, with students that uh, took undergrad classes, you know, seven years, five years ago, and, you know, all these classes have added up and they're struggling to meet that 3.0, but their last two semesters or their last two years, 
they've been killing it. I know it depends on the school, but from your experience where you're at, how do schools uh, still get around that minimum that CAPD requires, but still looks at the student holistically and say, okay, they're not passing this 2.8 minimum GPA because it's been 10 years or seven years or whatever, but their last two years, they have a 3.8. How does that work uh, from your perspective? Yeah, so again, like if we look at it from a holistic standpoint, right, and a holistic point of view, let's say you have a 2.8 GPA overall, you know, the last two years, like you said, are trending upward, that that bodes well, right? That shows that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, you were young, you didn't necessarily know how college worked, what was going on, you slacked off a little, but now you're getting serious about it. Now you're really putting the time and effort in and the grades are getting better. So recent grades help, right? Because that shows, again, you're trending in the right direction. You can try to add or replace older, worse grades with newer, better grades, right? That can help things for sure. But then also, let, let's look at the, the example of like that, that 2.8, right? If we were to just say, hey, look, this student has a 2.8, we're not going to accept them, right? That wouldn't be a very strong case, right? So if we say, yeah, they have a 2.8, but they, they also do this, 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 and this, you know, and their last few semesters, you know, have been trending in the upward direction. Now we add it in as a holistic picture. And again, it shows a little bit better chance of us taking a flyer on on a student like that and giving them a chance knowing that again grit kind of shows up there a little bit right that the fact that they did get back on the horse and they did try again and they're trying to trend up in the right direction they're they're taking all the right steps and if you can convey that through some sort of interview process that also helps as well you know so so it, you know it is possible to to break those barriers but again some schools have almost like a list like a pecking order right so if, if they allow 50 people in their cohort and the first 40 have a 4.0, the next five have a 3.0, and then there's five more slots left, right? They don't have any other applicants. Everything's filled out. They're, they're good, but they have to try to fill those five slots. Do they take the 2.9 and the 2.8? Maybe if it makes sense, Right. I mean, again, at the end of the day, schools are trying to fill their seats. You know, they're trying to make sure that they, they get a full class. So, you know, it, it, it depends on the school for sure. But if there's spots available and they're all filled up up to a certain point and there's no more applicants that have that 3-0 or better, there's still some wiggle room down there. 100%. 100%. I loved it. I hope y'all picked up on the gems, those of you who are listening taking notes hope you picked up on it because this is literally from the admissions point of view like you're hearing it from them themselves so uh, now that we have a kind of holistic and even technical side of how students can definitely stand out uh, what are some pet peeves that you or the admissions committee uh, see over and over again that you're like man if they could just stop doing this this would help them so much what have the students done that's just been like Ugh, that grinds my gears yeah, professionalism is a big one, right? I, I'm a huge advocate of always being the consummate professional, right? You've, you've always got to be, you know, not necessarily dressed to impress, but, you know, lo looking good, you know, looking, looking professional uh, and then communicating in a professional way, right? Uh, you know, not being able to answer a question, a pretty simple question, a broad general question that we've given you like, hey, you know, what's your plan for the next five years? You know, where do you see yourself in five years? And you, you, you can't give an answer or you're like, you know, you stumble through it. And it's like, uh, 
I don't really know. I haven't really thought about it. Right. Like that's not, that's not even an option. You know, you've got to be able to think through these and hopefully you've practiced some of these questions that are pretty generic and that come a lot of times, you know, hopefully you've prepared for that stuff and practice. So, you know, come dressed professionally, come ready to, to answer all these conversations and it doesn't have to be scripted. Right. But you've got to at least have something in your mind that you can go off. You know, there's a, there's a list of 10 or 15 questions that are going to be asked, you know, across the boards, at least one of them uh, to any school, you know? And so having done a little bit of preparation, is very helpful, you know, whether it be, you you know, researching the university a little bit, knowing a little bit about it, uh, practicing some interview questions and being ready to to communicate your your point of view from the the answer standpoint of of the question. And then again, being dressed professionally and and, uh, interacting professionally. You know, those are those are the big ones for for us, for for me, at least. I like it. I like it. Super underrated, super underrated. Like, like you heard, you don't have to have your shirt tucked in. You don't have to have some glasses on, but just be a professional future physical therapist. You're going to be in a professional setting with clients, with patients, with other professionals, with physicians. Like you got to show them something. You got to show them something so that they could be proud to say, yes, you went to this university. You went here. You're from us. All right. So that's the big thing. That's the big thing there. So don't do that pet peeve. Leave that, leave that out the room. So now that we got that uh, done, locked in, let's talk about our other topic. Uh, basically, is PT school worth it? Uh, what's your, we can go anywhere you want. This is a huge, broad topic. It's been going on since before I even thought about PT. So uh, what's your kind of take on it from what you've heard recently? Yeah, so my big thing is PT school is worth it if you leverage it correctly, right? The debt-to-income ratio we know is bad and getting worse for physical therapists. Reimbursements going down, which is causing salaries to kind of go down or stay stagnant at least, right? Inflation's going up, student loan debt's going up, cost of education's going up. So, you know, if you're taking out one hundred and fifty to $250,000 worth of student loan debt and you're making sixty-five, seventy-five thousand a year right off the bat, that's not a great debt to income ratio. You know, again, it's not an exact science. There's no hardcore math on how it is, but basically, you know, if you take, you know, your salary, right. Over your student loan debt or or flip that your student loan debt over your salary, right. You want it to be about one, right. Anything more than that 1.5, 2.0, and you're looking, you know, you're in trouble. So if you're, you know, student loan debt's 200,000, but you're only making 100,000, still not a great debt to income ratio, right? So the big takeaway is, all right, well, how do I leverage my degree so that it ends up meaning more and making more and, and, and being more valuable? Right. And my thing for that, my takeaway for that is basically, you know, you've got to own your own business or start your own business. Uh, It doesn't have to be private practice per se. It can be a personal training business. It can be a digital marketing business, uh, you know, helping PT clinics get new leads in the door through Facebook ads or Google ads. If you're good at that stuff, it can be a writing business. I do a lot of uh, copywriting. I published a book, right? Student uh, PT educator, student debt eliminator, right? Any of your skill sets that you've learned from college until 
grad school and through grad school, you should be applying to some sort of a business, whether it be physical therapy or not. I recommend you keep at least one foot in the physical therapy boat because it is a great profession. It can help a lot of people, but you've got to start thinking outside the box. You've got to start thinking more than just that typical clock in, clock out, nine to five therapist. You know, you've got to think of other avenues and other options for revenue streams that you can apply your knowledge and your education to then make, you know, the, the physical therapy profession worth more and, and more show people that it's more valuable than current reimbursement levels, you know, and if, if reimbursement levels are an issue and you're working at a, a nursing home or a hospital or a pediatric clinic, and you love that and you want to do that, totally fine. Nothing wrong with that, but then supplement it with some sort of side income or some sort of side business. Because at the end of the day, at the very least, if you have an LLC or a PLLC or an S corp of some type, you're going to get tax benefits at least, right? You'll be able to write off some stuff on, on your business, which will help lower your taxes. So that's the first step. And then again, I've seen a couple of my, my mentees that have gone through PT school having a job, right? Where they were able to, to make two to 3,000 a month doing digital marketing and things like that, which has then allowed them to pay their in-state tuition off as they go and they graduate with no student loan debt, right? How amazing is that? And that, that can literally then carry on once they get out in the physical therapy world, right? So they graduate, they get their DPT, and now they can either start their own practice and use the digital marketing to build their own practice, or they can get a job at a clinic that they know, like, and love, right? And, and help them build their practice by showing them digital marketing and doing that for, for their business owner, right? So again, it's skills that you may have to learn a little bit along the way or what like website development. Maybe you just know how to do websites. You've been doing it for a while now since high school. You just know how to build websites. Great. Put that to use. Offer that to other clinics, right? Offer that to, you know, PT clinics that don't have a digital footprint. And I think if, if you know, we start doing that, we start thinking about how we can do things above and beyond just the clock in, clock out, nine to five physical therapist. That's when I think we can really make it worth it, you know? Not to say that 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 there's anything wrong with the nine to five, you know, but is that going to be enough to cover your basis? If it is, great. You know, keep on doing what you're doing. If it's not, we got to start thinking of other ways that we can utilize our skills. And, and it's like you said, Casey, there's there's so many options in physical therapy. There's so many avenues you can go down. Pick one that you love, like a hobby, and just make it a thing. Make it a business, you know? Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, where can they find your, your book you mentioned? Yeah, so uh, PT Educator Student Debt Eliminator is available on Amazon in a soft cover version and Kindle version. Uh, you know, we, we've we been doing the Professors of Profit uh, vlogcast, which is now in podcast form as well. Uh, and that kind of uh, talks about the different revenue streams that are available to healthcare workers. Uh, and I interview somebody doing a different revenue stream each week. Uh, so the book is kind of about the eight to 10 revenue streams that I currently do still for my three businesses. But then, uh, you know, again, I, there's some that I'm not doing that. And I try to interview people that are doing those so that we can learn more about them and see, you know, if that's something you're interested in, here's somebody who's doing it, you know, chat with them, figure it out and see if you can't start your own little side business or side hustle. I love it. I love it. You heard where to get it. Go get it. Go follow F Scott everywhere that he's doing great, great things. Uh, you can definitely make sure that PT school is worth it. So um, on that PT school side, uh, I haven't seen the most recent data on this, the last PT cast applicant data report, I think I saw was 2018 and 19. 
Um, so where I'm going with this is, have you seen that physical therapy schools or physical therapy is losing applicants to other professions because of that debt to income ratio? Or is all of healthcare going through the same problem and we all have yeah. a bad debt to income ratio? Kind of, how, how have you guys seen that? Yeah, it's not great. The problem is the data is kind of muddied because of COVID. So we don't really know, you know, are our numbers down a little bit? Yes. Are numbers down for applications because people are afraid of COVID and want that to go through before they apply so that there's no educational issues? You know, we've had to obviously do a lot of online courses and shift to online learning a lot, right? Luckily, our program kind of already did that. So we all we had to do was figure out our lab situation. But, it, it, you know, if I were to do it all over again and I was going to go the PT route, I would definitely do community college for two years in-state school for two years to finish my BA and then and probably in-state for a DPT as well. I'm going to preach that to my kids. I hope they listen. I probably won't, but I, you know, I'm going to try till I'm blue in the face and tell them, go to community college, get straight A's, knock out all your base classes, then go to state school, then go to state school again. But even by then, they'll have saved so much money. If they want to go to private school for grad school, I'll probably be able to help them foot that bill. Right. But then again, if I wasn't going to go to DPT school, I would say probably nurse practitioner or PA is probably the way to go because it's only two years. You know, it's a little bit higher level as far as diagnostic stuff. And, and you know, we can they can prescribe medications. Uh, so so are we losing some people to PA and NP? Maybe. Again, it's hard to tell with COVID. You know, a lot of people may have gotten into PT school and, and waited until COVID's done before they actually accept and go through. We just don't know the data on that yet. Um, so I, I would I would argue that, uh, yeah, a lot of medical professions are struggling right now because of the debt to income ratios, but doctors have higher earning potentials. So yeah, they go into more debt, but they can pay it off probably a little quicker due to the salary increases, right? PT's got a ceiling, a glass ceiling at some point. You can only make so many you know dollars based on the reimbursement levels of patients if you're in an insurance-based, uh, you know, setting. So your employer can only pay you so much because no matter, you know, the only way you can do, you know, make more is to see more volume. And you don't want to be seeing 30 patients a day and having a document on that every day, you just go nuts, you know, you, you hit burnout real quick. I agree. I agree. I, I've seen the same. I don't know if YouTube has been listening to my conversations, you know how Google is, but I've seen YouTube videos pop up with nurses saying the same thing, PA saying the same thing. MDs quitting, surgeons quitting because of that traditional model, that traditional healthcare model because of that insurance reimbursement. They're, they're going through the same things at different levels and they have different problems, but no profession is perfect. So if you run to PA, great, have a great career. However, they will have problems as, as well. Yep. I ran from pharmacy to physical therapy because I thought it was going to be perfect, but physical therapy has problems too. So uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I actually uh, just interviewed a husband and wife combo, both MDs, uh, and they actually both just left their jobs as doctors to start a uh, women empowerment life coaching business for women physicians. And it was mainly because they were burnt out, uh, but also, you know, the, the reimbursements were becoming an issue. Uh, you know, they were getting paid less and less and less. And, and you know, it just wasn't enjoyable for them anymore. They were burnt out. They were seeing too many patients. They were not happy with where they were at. So they left the, the medical field 
to, you know, go into something and create their own thing. They created their own business. They created a life coaching business that, you know, helps empower women physicians. They, they you know, great idea, very needed right now, right? Women physicians are needing a lot of help. They're having to navigate things like, uh, you know, childbearing and, you know, a, a lot of the power struggles and the payment differences, right? Between the males and females, they're having to fight a lot of that stuff. And, and this was a need. So they went in, they did that, and they're making, you know, well over six figures, multiple six figures on that business. And that allowed the husband to quit as well and join, join his wife uh, in the business. So again, every, every single career option out there in the healthcare field is going to have these issues. It's just like you said, we, you know, we all have our issues. So if that's the case, let's own them, let's take them in. And now let's figure out ways to get around those issues. Let's figure out how to get over those barriers and how to overcome those issues. And, and I think, again, the moral of the story is always start your own business one way, shape or form, find something you love to do, go all in on it, right? Even if it starts as a side hustle or a side gig and eventually becomes your full-time gig, just like the doctors did, right? Great. If you want to keep it as a side hustle, again, all of my businesses are side hustles. They'll always have to be, right? Because I need benefits for my wife, who's a type one diabetic. So, you know, I don't think I'll ever get more than a side hustle. And I'm okay with that. Like, I love what I do on the side. It's, it's you know, the perfect amount of time, perfect amount of effort, energy, money. It's perfect. I love it. So I'm, I'm good with that. Um, you know, but it, some people want to make it a full-time gig and that's great too. But you got to have something going to supplement and, and, you know, hopefully bring a little fulfillment as well. You know what I think is amazing about your own story and the story you just told about the uh, physician couples is that uh, sometimes when we talk to our audience or students about this uh, topic, they're like, well, why go into PT or healthcare or do anything? Why don't I just do um, a side hustle, right? A straight side hustle. However, the story that you told about yourself and the physician couple is that they would not be able to do what they do at their level unless they had that base of being a PT first or an MD first. They exactly. cannot serve that population of women physicians if they were not physicians. You could not get to your level as being an educator unless you were a PT. So if you're battling like, uh, should I just do side hustles? Well, you're just going to be an average side hustle person. But if you're an MD or PT with side hustles or other skills, you're now a PT or MD with other skills. It's a different level. So I love those stories. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just having the DPT after your name, having the credentials gets me in a ton of doors that normally they wouldn't have. Then let's take it up a notch and having the EDD and the terminal degree. Now it blows it out of the water because I've got two doctorates, right? I get copywriting jobs all the time just based on the letters after my name. I say, look, I've got a doctorate in physical therapy. I've got a doctorate in education. And P.S. I was a B.A. in English, so I used to write. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, God, you got to write our blog for us. Can you write? our?" Yeah, absolutely. And they're like, well, how much do you charge? And I say, well, you know, it's, it's a lot more than the normal copywriter because you're dealing with someone with two doctoral degrees and a BA in English. And I'm like, yeah, OK, we'll pay it right for a better quality blog and and knowing I have marketing value. Right. So I know SEO as well. Search engine optimization. Right. Again, we're I'm, I'm becoming a unicorn now, right? As I layer these things in, right? It started with a DPT, and I've just added layers of complexity and skill sets. And now, uh, again, I'm I'm able to to command my my price. I'm able to charge what I want for a lot of these consulting gigs and these freelance gigs because. I've got the credentials, you know, and again, it, it opens doors and it gets me in front of people and it gives me these opportunities that I never would have had if I didn't have the degrees. 
So when people say, is it worth it? I don't know. I'm scared. I was there too. I mean, I had, I was in the middle of an EDD. I didn't even think I wanted to use. And now all it took was four or five of my mentors saying, no, all you got to do is leverage it. As long as you leverage it, it, you can do whatever you want. And that put me at ease. And I said, yeah, you're right. I can do whatever I want. And I did. I started PT educator. Right. And I just didn't look back. This is, this is me. This is what I love to do. I love to blog. I love to do podcasts. You know, I love to talk about education and learning, especially in the healthcare realm. So we started the, you know, healthcare education transformation podcast, you know, five, six years later, we're still doing it. You know, it's, it's because it's a labor of love, you know, does it make money on the side? Yeah, sure. But it didn't start out that way. You know, it, it took time. It took really caring about what we did and loving what we did to get to those points. So that's why, again, I recommend just finding something you love, finding a, a population you love, finding a, you know, a setting you love, uh, a hobby you love, and just lean all into it, go all into it, find out how you can relate and connect point A, your physical therapy degree and your grad school skill sets to point B, that, that thing that you need to put out in the world to help more people right? Because that's that's the moral of the story, right? End of the day, we can work one-on-one with patients, right? But if we have something that can solve a problem for a bigger population, and we can figure out how to put that into a course or a book or, you know, a training or whatever it may be, now we're doing that one-to-many training, right? Where it's like, I'm helping 10 or 15 people at once, or all the people that buy my course, as opposed to just me and that one patient that I'm helping. So, you know, it, it, it becomes a bigger picture thing and you, you have a much larger impact when you start thinking that way. And I think that's how, that's how we're really going to make a, a, a big, you know, improvement on all of the community and, 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 you know, all the populations out there as physical therapists. Hey, you took my last question right, right out from under me. So that was, that was amazing. That was amazing. But I think one of the most powerful things you said in there is, we got a lot of, I'm sure you see this, applicants say, I want to help people. Well, yes, you can help people one-on-one and if that's what you want to do, great. However, if you go to, if you write in your application something about something that F. Scott just said and he sees that, he's going to be like, who the heck is this applicant? How do they know this? Who is this person? Let's bring them in. I need to know more about them. Boom. And there goes your answer, one of your answers to the infamous question, how do I stand out? Yeah. So going all the way full circle, here's your answer. Yeah, it's it's impact, man. It's impact. Do you want to help people? Yeah, sure. We all do. That's why most of us got into healthcare, right? But it's it's I want to have a bigger impact. And if you if you convey that, if you can show how and why you want to have a bigger impact, you're going to stand out. It's going to be, you know, nine people are going to say, I want to help people. I want to help people. I want to get people better. I want to, you know, I went through PT. I think I can help others go through PT. Like, great. If you say, I want to have a bigger impact and I want to make a a stamp on the world. I want to put my own spin on it and help as many people as I can in the soccer ACL reconstruction world. Cause that's my thing. That's my bread and butter. I love that topic. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? I want to make a bigger impact in that community. That's way better than I want to help people. You know, that's next level thinking. That's what gets us thinking, okay, this guy's on to something or this gal, this gal knows what's up, right? So, so again, you got to think bigger. You got to think, you know, impact more than just that clock in, clock out, nine to five impact. I mean, man, if you don't have some gems, if you don't have at least seven gems from this podcast episode, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. 
it's from it's from their mouths themselves, from the admissions committee's mouths themselves. So hope you got some value from this. Uh, thank you again, F. Scott, for joining us and dropping extra extra value to the future, our our liberal colleagues. So I appreciate you taking the time and dropping gems to them. Again, uh, where can they find you? Where can they get your book and everything that you got going on? Yeah, so pteducator.com is the website. Uh, all my social media handles are pretty much at PT Educator. Um, you know, like I said, the book is on Amazon. It's PT Educator Student Debt Eliminator. Uh, you know, I have some personal social media stuff, but that's usually just cats and kids and dogs and stuff. Uh, you know, a little bit of PT sprinkled in there, but you know, most of my stuff's uh, uh, on the business stuff is is PT Educator. So. Look me up there. And, uh, you know, Casey, I can't thank you enough, man. I love, like I said, I love what you guys are doing. This has been a long time in the works. I know we've been uh, trying to get this on the book. So I'm just glad to talk to you and hopefully educate your audience a little bit. And if anybody has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'm very, very accessible on social media. Um, love to chat about any, any questions you guys have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Reach out to him, take some action, and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, guys.